Okay, we're on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome to a special edition of the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Carl Hemis, the Chief Operating Officer for Asia at TMX Global. Carl, I cannot thank you enough for doing this today. How are you, by the way? I'm all good. Uh, look, thank you for the invite. Uh, it's, it's, it, we've been trying to do this for a while. I know. I was thinking the same thing. It's, uh, it's great to get together. I mean, the year has started out as the year finished, I guess, which is very lucky for us. We're very busy. Yeah. Lots of clients around the place, lots of activity in the business. So yeah, really good. Really good. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. I love talking to people that are happy and in a great mood. And before we get to the central part of our conversation, I want to get some of your background for some context for this. Yeah. Often when I, I sort of get introduced to people, they're like, you've got a really odd background. And I'm like, yeah, I Is take that. Is it odd as a though? I think it's, I got referred to as a unicorn last year, right? Which I'm like, I'm not sure that's a good thing at my age, right? That That's probably the wrong place to be, right? But um, look, I, I grew up in 3PL, right? Uh, my parents, two sets of uncles and a grandparent are all in the industry. So it's kind of a DNA thing for me. Oh, wow. Um, I tried lots of things to stay away from it, but ended up in it. And, and I love it. Um, it clearly is genetic. And I grew up inside big organizations like Kinnan Argyle and DHL. Yeah. Um, was very lucky to get taught and schooled and taken on board and mentored. There's a whole conversation, you know, how I came through that industry. But I got disenfranchised with it because it wasn't following what was happening in the world. And I got asked to help and set up and run DHL e-commerce for Asia, right? And and we saw the opportunity early yeah. to go upstream. And DHL didn't want to go there, which is the only reason I left, right? Was because I could see that, and these are all my opinions, obviously, but the, the 3PL world is getting left behind. So those big traditional freight moving companies are getting attacked from all sides and they didn't want to move. So I dropped out of the traditional environment and I actually went into startups for a while Yeah, and was bobbing around in tech in logistics, which is a really taboo subject with all traditional 3PL people because they just don't want to talk about it. It's like, don't tell me about tech. <laughs> but I really want to understand why, because you look at companies like DHL, Carry Logistics, like all these companies, they were so good and so efficient at taking, let's just say a pallet, yeah, mm. off a ship, and getting it to where it meant to go and doing it super efficiently. And that ship could have come all the way from, you know, Singapore to LA. And it yeah. ended up getting out to getting to the store where it needed to get to or to the distribution center and stuff. But then splitting that pallet into its component parts of like one piece going to, you know, Main Street, another piece going to Turkey Meadow Road. I lived on that street. I didn't make that up. Got to be really hard. But what was the opposition to them dealing with tech in the context of logistics? So it's, it's a great question, right? And for me, it comes in two parts, right? So the freight world grew up by, it was a little bit like uh, the movie where they travel down the yellow brick road and they find the, the wizard <laughs> and the wizard happens to be a small old man behind a curtain, yeah, curtain. With pulleys and levers, right? <laughs> that is the story of the freight world, right? <laughs> they hid everybody away from it and said, don't ask us, it's too difficult. It's very complicated. We'll do it for you, right? E-commerce came along, which is where they started having brake pallets and do these funny little box deliveries to doors. And, and suddenly the world understood a little bit more about what they did and that it actually, if you're organized, isn't that complex, right? And then technology started to poke even further holes in what they were doing. So there was a, a big sort of generic turn away from it that said, 
actually, we're going to stay over here. And you, this thing called e-commerce, it's still boxes, it's still pallets, it's still containers. What you do with it when we deliver it to you, hands off, it's not us, right? And that was the, the my intro to, to how I got here is why I left, because it was like, you're missing the biggest part of the market. And they still don't want to do it. Uh, and they're still very reluctant to adopt what we refer to as, as technology in terms of this. I mean, you and I cannot be that far apart in age, but I think if people look at us from, you know, 10 or 20 meters away, they'll think those guys have no idea what tech is. Yeah, totally. I love it. I right? love this. So do I. And I love being um, underestimated. It's I've been underestimated my entire life and outperformed. But here's the thing I want to ask. Right. And you said the logistics of your parents, your grandparents, your great grandparents were all in the logistics and 3PL business. But I can't believe that grandpa was using tech to do this. Where does the tech interest come for, for you? And, and why? Because that has to be the big separating point for you between leaving a corporate and doing what you're doing today is the yeah. tech piece. Yeah. Because the tech gives yeah. you scale and leverage that you couldn't get otherwise. Where does your tech interest come from? I think. It's down to a couple of things, right? Is one, I, I left the traditional 3PL space very early, and that was just by coming to Asia. Um, you know, I left Europe, I landed in Hong Kong, and it was like, what on earth is going on? And then in the mid-90s, I got sent over the border into Shenzhen. The Pearl River Delta opened, so that's just Shenzhen, Guangzhou. I ran into those areas, and I was like, who knows about this stuff? It's like a right? different world. Then, China was like 10 years ahead of the rest of the world in yeah. technology at that point. It just wasn't telling anyone, you know, they were using QR code to pay for stuff in, yeah. in the late 90s, right? And that's, you know, most people in Europe still can't spell QR code, <laughs> let alone use <laughs> If you've spotted them, the Q and the R. Yeah, it's just like, I, 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 what do you mean? It doesn't work. I can't do it, right? So right. my exposure to that came very early. And then because of having the opportunity in DHL e-commerce, I got exposed to Alibaba and Lazada got and it. eBay to some extent. And then I was around for the formation of Amazon Fulfillment. So I was actually sat in a meeting room in Seattle when they figured out how to do it. And I came out of that meeting with four of my colleagues from DHL and we were like, we've just lost our jobs. Yeah. Because Amazon have now figured out what fulfillment is. Right. And now we're in trouble. Right. <laughs> and, and you've seen the story go from Amazon ever since. Right. Yeah. So my exposure was really early to this and i think it's also i've always been quite inquisitive you know my parents will tell you that i was the kid that used to take things apart and could never get them back together again i would be left with a little bag of nuts and bolts that wouldn't fit back to where they were supposed to go so for me technology is my ability to do that without actually breaking anything right because you can play around with it you can experiment i mean technical words like sandboxing and things all start to appear right but in layman's terms for me technology is the ability to experiment and test and play without actually touching anything and breaking it. And for me, that was a blessing, right? Because I break stuff a lot. <laughs> so it was the ability really to stretch it. And then because of working around some of these really interesting companies, it pulls you along and you just get into that mindset yeah. of, yeah, we can we can have a go at that. Or yeah, why wouldn't we do it? Or And, and again, this is where the hearts and minds of some of the big logistics players just are not there. They're, they're, they're too big now. I mean, some of these companies are half a billion, oh, sorry, yeah, half a million people yeah. just in certain countries, right? I mean, and you've got, I think DHL now 600,000 people worldwide. UPS are nearly a million people worldwide, right? I was talking to Accenture the other week. They just crossed 700,000 people as well, right? So it's like they're too big to shift. These are traditional companies who truly are now oil tankers that it takes two years to move, right? 
And unfortunately, e-com in the space doesn't wait that long. It doesn't at all. It's it's in a hurry and it's moving really fast. I feel like we're at an inflection point, not just for 3PL, but for almost every industry that has accumulated anywhere between 500,000 to, let's just say, 1.2 million employees. And I think that all the aggregation that's gone on over the past, I don't know, call it 50 years, is now about to be disintermedi- disintermediated by smaller independent companies that are doing things with technology. Does that make sense? Totally. And, look, I, 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 and this was the other thing that interested me about moving into the space and a way into these smaller, agile, customer-driven companies is you can go pick off work from some very, very big organizations without yeah. too much trouble right. because you just say yes. Right? Right. Yeah. It's not difficult. You go, yeah, we'll do that. Then you come back to the office and you go figure it out. Right? Yeah. You don't need 52 spreadsheets and 14 people in a meeting room to figure this stuff out. Right? No. Um, no. And I think that's where you're absolutely right. This growth of mid-market superheroes is, is going to continue to grow, and I love it. I, I think these companies have got all the smarts. I think they've been given a bad rep by the media, predominantly chatting about, VCs giving them money they don't know what to do with, PEs coming in and not understanding what they're investing in. To my mind, that's rubbish. These people are trying to help, right? And maybe they've made some bad investments and maybe they've poured a bit too much cash in. I don't think that's anything to do with the companies they're investing in. That's just the global environment we're in right there, which is, for me, investing is worse than the lottery, right? You need a lucky rabbit's foot, a crystal ball and some dice, and then you might start to have a chance. Yeah. So I think it's a really interesting space. Yeah, well, you and I could spend, I think, a ton of time talking about how the, at least how the VC world is, is broken, but I think that's a conversation for another time. Yeah, a long conversation. <laughs> I was on a call yesterday or the day before with somebody who's building something in the artificial intelligence space. You'll see where this is related in a second. And he said, I want to be clear about this. We're not building tech for tech stake. Right, because I think like you can just have technology and show off technology. You can see what Facebook is doing, renaming themselves from you know, Facebook to Meta, trying to, I don't know, convince people that the metaverse as they see it is a thing. Mm. Frankly, I think it's a misdirection of focus, right? In the sense you can build whiz-bang technology, but if you're not using it for like regular day-to-day things, here's the thing. I learned pretty quickly that tech, technology connectivity when I was at Morgan Stanley and then at Goldman Sachs, allowed me to be factors more productive. I mean, really exponentially more productive, so much so that like someone actually said to me, is that magic? Like, how did you do that? So I think this like (laughs) real world application of cool tech changes the way people do business. I want to know how what you're doing in the context of the metaverse, because you run the risk of getting lost in this idea of, is it just like that when it's not? So tell me how it's not and how it's like a real world application. Yeah, awesome. I was smiling as you were saying that because I said the metaverse is dead, right? And, and immediately I was like, what? What have we done? What, we've invested in something and it's gone? What's going on? And <laughs> on. what basically the article was positioned in exactly the way you've just explained, right? The world went crazy. They saw this metaverse thing. They saw Facebook change its name and everybody ran and followed it and went, it's going to change the world, right? And now it hasn't. And everyone's like, oh, it's rubbish. It's gone. And it's like, well, when did our reaction time become 0.3 of a second? Yeah, right? exactly. Is... The metaverse has been in an existence, I think, in reality, less than tw- less than two years, right? In its, current, in its implementation, year, yeah, for sure, if yeah. that. And a little bit like the birth of the internet, that all the people that I speak to around it 
of varying levels of either financial interface with it or the actual technology development of it or the actual writing of the code that supports it have no clue where this thing is going yeah. they're like we've we've sort of happened on it yeah we're doing things with it and it's now talking back to us and we're now looping in ai we're now looping in predictive we're playing with machine learning with it and it keeps growing right and i think this is one of the things that drew me to tmx and and it's kind of a serendipity thing when you start to bump into people we're all of the same mindset right and this is about practical application and and your sort of analogy of it makes me x times more productive is exactly the way that we look at it all right and, and the metaverse is one tool all right it's a very big and a very modern and a very exciting one but what we're looking to do with it is follow our philosophy in this in terms of it's a real life use case to solve a real life problem and if a piece of technology doesn't do those things then it's it might be clever but it's not for us right, right. the history of particularly again uh, i hate sort of bemoaning my industry because i love it and, and i spend so much time in it but the logistics industry has a habit of going to the top right hand corner of the garden the quadrant and saying that's where we should be <laughs> and you go well, yeah but why and they'll go well because it's up there it right. says and you're like but if we looked at the use case have we tried it have we brought them in to talk to us we don't need to Gartner did all of that those days i think are, 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 and i'm really happy that those days are going right this is now if it doesn't help me fix a problem if it doesn't give clarity and purpose to an investment and either money, time or effort, don't use it. And I think Asia and Southeast Asia in particular is a really strong advocate of this where, you know, we've got traditional labor rates that are incredibly low. Yep. You've got huge amounts of available labor or we did pre-pandemic uh, and, you know, a 600 million strong base of people that are largely in their 25 to 40 age group which means they're available for work so it, this is now starting to tip a little bit um and i think that's that's where we view the metaverse and other tools as really creating an environment where we can collaboratively grow with the tech with the people and, and with the country itself i, I want to get to a couple of examples of some real world implementations of this because they're probably super cool but you mentioned the Gartner Magic Quadrant, and I also want to mention the Gartner Hype Cycle because I think it's important just to frame this conversation. Mm. The Hype Cycle is actually really compressed now, right? Like there's always this technology trigger and it goes whoosh all the way up to this peak of inflated expectations. And I think we're past that now. I think we've already gone into this like trough of disillusionment and coming up into this, what they call the slope of trough enlightenment, of right? Yeah. I like so, that. <laughs> but, but I think that, yeah, so do I, because that trial of disillusionment for the internet actually lasted for almost a decade. Yeah, absolutely. Right? But for the metaverse, it's going to be much more compressed. And I want to talk about some of that compression with you, because if you're actually implementing this in real world examples, I, I'd love mm. to know like one or two of them and then see how it's changed the way, whether it's in the supply chain or just in the ERP in the inside of a warehouse, right? This stuff yeah. has changed. Go for it. For me, there's there's two standout sort of examples, I guess. And one of them is around stakeholder management. Okay. As we said, logistics and supply chain has done a really good job of making itself difficult and complex and hard to reach. Right. And so it results in senior leaders of businesses, and I've been one of those, particularly as a COO uh, in large organizations where CEO and CFO only ever want to talk to you when there's a problem. Right. You know, and, and otherwise investment or strategy just wasn't a thing right nobody understood it and it was like the dirty people in the warehouse go away and leave me alone 
And when you wanted to push for investment into new facilities or new technologies, this was really difficult because it's expensive. You know, it's expensive. It's misunderstood or not understood, right? So we then sat literally two weeks ago with the chairman and his board of a very large organization in Malaysia going through a deep transformation. Okay. And they're moving from traditional business to uh, post-pandemic demand from country, from government, and from people. Yeah. Uh, it's around food securities. And it means them changing everything. So we've been around them for a while now, looking at everything from strategy to methods to go to IPO. And and the guys then turned around and said, well, what are we getting? And we were like, what do you mean, what are we getting? And they were like, well, you sent us all these beautiful designs and we can't read the drawings and, you know, the blueprint, is it a hat? Is it a brooch? You know, it's, what, what are we doing? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, there's only a few people that will understand that reference, right? <laughs> um, the... Up to this was we said, you know what, we're going to put your food grading, sortation and automation facility in the metaverse. We're then going to bring you into it as a board and you can come and see what you're about to spend your money on. And we had sort of 50% of the group go, love it, fantastic. But the other 50% of the group were like, we don't think they're going to understand what you're doing. This is really technical. Uh, we went with it and we put the chairman in the metaverse. He had his Oculus goggles on, uh, sat behind his desk and the guy was blown away uh, and he spent 40 minutes talking about it with his board and with us and and it pushed the investment case through right so bringing reality to very difficult to understand ideas and strategies and giving people the chance to see exactly what it is they're going to be investing in is a real use case and as i say this is a, a chairman of a very traditional malaysian company that just went i get it i see what you're doing and that's a huge help for us in this industry. When, when, he, when he took the goggles off, did he feel like he'd come out of the future and right into the present? I, I really want to, do you know what I mean? Because it's so different than what he's already experienced. And, no? and this was the conversation, right? He's, uh, you went back in a second time. Yeah. He was like, I, I need to explain this. And, and one of the unique things about the metaverse, which makes it different, and it was how we got to the, the use case of, of actually working with it, is its collaborative nature. So whilst meta and decentralized and all these guys are trying to get you to go into a space yeah. to spend money or buy product we're in there driving collaboration right so we'd actually got two of the engineers that then met the chairman in his new facility and basically we did a building tour in the metaverse right and this then snapped back to oh yeah here's 200 slides of powerpoint sat on my desk but i can put this on and i can see immediately what that 200 pages means right and that's the connection that supply chain needs because we're too technical. We're, too, we're not data-driven enough, actually, but it's the wrong data that we share. And there is very little link back to the real world when we're pitching for some of these things, right? Right. The, the thing in the pandemic that I still refer back to is nobody understood the importance of supply chain and why it was a major thing until toilet paper ran out on a shelf. And the whole world went mad and people were fighting over toilet paper in supermarkets, right? Yeah. That was the moment that tipped. And if you watch the media around that point, you can track when they went, how did the toilet roll used to get here? <laughs> like, did it not just appear in the warehouse? Like, we thought there was just like a tunnel that it came through and it was here. So <laughs> this is a conversation that I used to have a, a lot. And that was, we take all of these, and, and I'll get back to the metaverse in a second. You'll see where this is going. But we take all of these things that we live with for granted. But think about this. If I took away every piece of automation that you had, right? Your phone, your television, your lights, your car, 
the buses, the airplanes that used to fly, the boats, and just said, okay, now you have nothing. Let's rebuild this from scratch. We'd all die. Because we couldn't even make our own food. Most people couldn't even grow a tomato in their backyard, much less make the toilet paper, right? Which we completely take for granted. The only way, sorry, that we have access to any of this stuff is through really sophisticated supply chain management. Correct. But also watch this. Just imagine this situation, and again, tell me where I'm wrong here, where somebody senior at, the, at a warehouse or as part of the supply chain is just on vacation and something breaks down. Everything breaks down, right? It's nobody's fault. And now they have to go back from where they are to another country to go to the warehouse or go to the place where it's broken and inspect it. But they don't anymore, right? Because now they can literally go into the metaverse exactly. In what, and tell me again, is it a digital twin? Is it exactly the place where it is? just reformed yeah. in the metaverse so they can then go there and interdict and fix something in a way that was impossible before, no? Yeah, and this is where I, I get really excited about where we potentially can take this, right? So I've had some background in ports and infrastructure projects and, and large-scale difficult things, right? And, yeah. and Digital Twin is starting to answer some of those issues, right? And so being able to model an environment in parallel that says, well, can I test? So back to my, I like to break things and test them. Yep. Um, you can do that. The problem with digital twin still is it's very removed from the operation because, it, again, it's quite mathematical. It's driven by people that understand exactly what they're doing with that tool. And it, and it gets into a rabbit hole very, very quickly if you're not careful. Okay. What we're trying to do with, met, with the renders in the metaverse is make that, again, something that's more tangible. Right. So... Right now, when you go into a facility that we've designed in the metaverse, it's a, and we call it a meta clone because it's a one-to-one -one render from either the actual business facility that's there or the one they want to build. So we're actually taking it from architectural drawings. We're, we're using a middleware to move from traditional CAD tools into the metaverse. And so if a beam is at 2.3 meters on your architectural drawing, it's 2.3 meters in the metaverse. So if you've got a million square foot facility, which we've done for a client in the UK, it takes you a long while to walk around it because yeah. it's really a million square feet of facility in the metaverse. And this was what blew away the chairman when we showed him through because he could actually walk through the different parts of the building. So he walked past the grading machinery. He could see how it would sit in the building. He then walked through a, physically walked through a door in the building that took him to the manual area where they would deal with things that were not quite right. He could go out to the dock doors and look at how the loading bays laid out and where the trucks would move through. So it's very much reality in the virtual world, if you like. Yeah. Where we're trying to move to is that what, what you've just described is what we call simulation. So what's not available at the moment, and we're working quite hard with a couple of partners on this, is to bring that virtual representation of an operation into the metaverse. For an example, if I can run a sorting machine at 1,000 parcels an hour, what happens if I turn it up to 2,000 parcels an hour? Right. And what we want to be able to do is to physically see that happening. So you find your breaking points. You find your bottlenecks. We've had, I'll get to the second use case in a minute, but we've had some really interesting conversations with, uh, with non-technical people about how this works. But if you can run a simulation that goes from... A processing 1,000 parcels to 2,000 parcels without putting anybody at risk, right? Because in the old days, you could turn up the machine yeah, and you could go to 2,000 parcels, but somebody might lose their hand or, yeah, or somebody might fall down or the equipment might break. But if you can simulate this, does it change the way you interact with insurance companies as well? I mean, I don't know if you've thought about that, but you know what I mean? 
know what? It's and again, this is why I love what we're doing. So we were talking to somebody here in Thailand around the use because they have a semi-automated warehouse at the moment and yep. they're looking for other things. And they said, Can you drive a forklift in the metaverse? And we were like, What do you mean? And they were like, Well, we have problems with you know new drivers coming in and they, they bang into the new kit that we've got or yeah. they don't know their way around. And so we sort of sat and went, well, technically, yes, but one of the issues that the metaverse has is that it has no relation to physics. So you can't emulate weight or speed or anything relative to real life, right? We haven't invented physics in the metaverse yet. I'm sure it will come. It will. But then we did a bit more digging and we engaged with uh, a forklift company that's working in VR. So they've created... Uh, a VR format for forklift training, which we think we can almost copy and paste into the metaverse. So then you've got a virtual training module for a forklift truck, but the warehouse that you're driving it around is the one that you're going to be working in. Right. So the forklift drivers know where to park them to charge them. They know where to go in terms of where the bathroom is and where the canteen is, all those kinds of things. Right. The super interesting thing, back to your point about insurance, is when we spoke to the provider about this, they went, yeah, we've got all the insurance companies now climbing around us about this because the first 60 days of forklift driving is when the majority of accidents will happen. Naturally. And they said, we've got, and they, they started, and again, statistics drive me nuts, right? But they started to reel off a bunch of numbers and some pretty charts that said, look, it's reducing it. And I'm like, okay, forget all the numbers and all your statistics. I'm not really too stressed about that, but show me real time. How many people have you trained and how many accidents have they had? And they went, oh, yeah, we did 15 people and they had no accidents because they'd already understood how the forklift worked right. and that they'd been around the kit. So they knew what to do, right? So this has got another layer of practicality to it, that when you start to talk about being able to do training, we've already started to work with simulating picker. And when, when you look at the, the two demonstration modules that we've got, there's a pick and pack environment in there where – with a little about five minutes worth of training, you can learn to pick and pack a box yep. into an outer, onto a pallet, and then move it out, all in the metaverse, right? Now, you get into discussions around augmented reality where you could probably further that experience even, even more, right? So I think training and application to safety and application to building operations is an area of this that will take its own direction some point in the next couple of years. I cannot wait until we solve the physics in the metaverse because you're right. Once we can, once we can understand weight, speed, time, and all the things that go into physics, just the way it changes the way we do things is going to be insane. It does. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's typical of. I mean, we have some. A lot of the, the guys that we've got working for us on developing this are all from the gaming industry. Yeah. Uh, and this has been the big separation in technology recently as well, which is there's a huge crossover now in the languages and the tools. Yeah. that we use for development that, that meet exactly with gaming. Right? So some of the guys we've got now are all gaming industry people. And they were like, we figured out you can fly in the metaverse. And I was like, what do you mean? And like, well, because there's no reality to physics or space, you can literally just take off. And I was like, have you done it? And they went, yeah, yeah, but we all threw up. Right? <laughs> yeah. Your body can't deal with it because it yeah. has no nothing to latch there's on no to. There's no frame of reference. People don't understand so like how... You, you get immediate extreme motion sickness yeah. um and, and they said it's not pretty so we, we won't be doing it again in the in the we, they call it the lab but it's the area of the business that we've got for them so you you brought up something that i hadn't thought about before we started recording when a company like tmx starts employing technology right you said this a little bit like we don't know where we're going to go we don't know where it's going and we also don't know who's going to react and how they're going to react to what we're doing have you found 
in the time that you've been doing this, the time that you've been engaging partners, that using new technology that allows you to engage other partners that you hadn't considered engaging before, like insurance companies, because it just didn't make any sense before, but now you're like, it's giving you such a larger scope to work with? 100%. Uh, this will go in, in probably two ways for us, but uh, you and I have spoken before, uh, and again, one of the reasons that I joined TMX is this idea of new ecosystems, right? Yeah. Um, and there's all kinds of analogies. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go, you know, with, with others, yeah. Um, and I think that's never truer than than with technology development and particularly what we're trying to do within the logistics and, and supply chain space, right? We can't do it alone. We, we can run off into the future and we can go build a metaverse and stand on top of a hill and go, look at us, aren't we clever? <laughs> and we'll be on our own, right? Uh, and it'll be a very expensive venture. The idea of sort of holding on to other organizations and sharing and being open around what we're doing, talking about issues, talking about opportunities, has opened up a whole new world to us, right? And, and this ability yeah. to walk from a meeting and go, can I drive a forklift in the metaverse? Three days later, we had an answer that said, yeah, you can, and here's yeah. how you do it, right? Go back five years, you would not be able to do that in this industry. But you wouldn't have even been exist, engaging right? with them. That's my point, right? You wouldn't have been engaging with them because there was no reason to do it. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So you wouldn't even know where to talk to, right? So I think part of this, it's opened up new platforms and, and new technology providers and new partners. But beyond that, it's opened up a whole new world of use cases. So to your point, insurance companies, right? We've now had automation companies coming to us yeah. saying, how do we put our kit in your metaverse so That's people can see it? So it's changed the dynamic, right? The other thing that I love is that because, I mean, the, the Oculus sets will go anywhere, and but they need a fairly ready internet connection at the moment. And, and it takes a bit of a, a practice with. So it's actually drawing customers to come see us and as, as you know from the logistics space, the only time you normally see a customer is if there's a court case. <laughs> there's very other times they'll come to the office, right? So okay. to now having them come to us because they want to see what we're doing. Yeah, uh, we've built the showroom in Bangkok, and it's it's become its own thing. I've had to actually employ a couple of people to to work with us now on a part time basis to almost do tours. <laughs> yeah, because. Yeah, I mean, it looks, I mean, we've done a great job, I'll be honest. I'm very proud of what we've put together. But when you start to engage with people on what we're doing, they look at you like, what? And then you show them it. And it's it's a really satisfying experience. I haven't gone through this with anyone yet that hasn't come out the other end of it going, that's amazing. How did you do it? Can I go again? And have you thought about this, 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 and this? Right. Everyone's got thoughts about how it should work. And I think it's because it's this very um, tactile experience, right? This is not sitting in front of, you know, PowerPoints. This is not sitting in front of a computer screen. This is this is actually going somewhere on a journey. Right? Yeah. And it's I've started to, to liken it to that movie Inception now because you can go through portals to go to somewhere else. Then you go through a new portal to go somewhere else. You're four or five layers into the metaverse before you know it now. Yeah. So it's like, how long is it going to be before we get somebody not come back? Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm out of here. We lose, we lose a very senior customer somewhere to the metaverse, right? So, whatever happened to Bob? Does it change the <laughs> way? And I know it's early, right? But I'm curious the way you think about this. Does it change the way you think about sales and the way your sales force can think about it? Because it's just another, like, like you said, 
the world is so tired of PowerPoint presentations. Some guy I was on a call with a couple of days ago. He was like, should I bring up the PowerPoint or should I just tell you what I'm thinking? I'm like, please. Just slides. I'm just so tired of it. <laughs> anyway, but it, does it change what you think about sales? It does. I, I look, so I guess the other one of the other use cases and, and the genesis for, for actually getting into this thing in the first place was COVID dislocated a very important part of our business, which is design. So a lot of the warehouses we design are very, very complex. I mean, I've met in TMX some of the most talented automation specialists, design specialists, and architects and I've ever come across, not just in this industry, but right, in general. But yeah. The trick that they have to pull off is that they make very difficult designs engaging to the customer by being in the room with them. So there's a lot of whiteboard sessions. There's a lot of sharing of drawings and, and explaining of things, right? That's very hard to do on Teams. The actual design process is almost impossible remotely in its current state. Right. So the team figured out how to do this in the metaverse. So the collaborative nature of being, and you literally can stand around a table and look down on the internal workings of a warehouse. And you can pick up a piece of racking and move it. You can pick up a, I don't even know how heavy an ASRS system is. It's hundreds and thousands of tons of metal that you can pick up, shift, and put down somewhere else. Yeah. Right? And you can do it whilst talking to each other and seeing, and it's an avatar at the moment. They don't represent us still. But you're working together collaboratively. You can hear and see and, and work through things together. That design process will materially change what's happening in design over yeah. the next two years. I mean, it has but to. But it also materially will change the way we engage with clients. We've already had, so we had the team in Melbourne. We had the client sat with us in Bangkok, and his boss was in Korea. Yeah. And we were all in his warehouse that he wanted to build in the metaverse, talking to one another in real time. It's like design without destruction, right? If I move this machine literally three inches to the left or if I make the warehouse, you know, four and a half percent bigger or whatever it is, like you said, I can test without destroying. Your parents will be happy about this. Maybe they'll get their TV set back from when you were a kid. But by being able to do this, you're driving efficiency in a way you never could do before. And I know this because when I set up a studio in somebody else's office, it literally took me all day because I physically had to move furniture from one part of their office to another part of their office, rearrange it in the room, film it, see what the vantage points look like, look what the lighting situation was. If I could have done all of this and just been like, with software, yeah, it would have saved me eight, 10 hours of a 15-hour day. And this is exactly what we're seeing now as we engage people during the design process. Yeah. Uh, we've been doing this with, uh, I can say it's Marks and Spencer's in the UK, right? So we've, we've won uh, an enormous piece of work with them and we're designing their new facilities with them in the metaverse. Wow. And, and exactly what you just said, right? They're like, let's bring the warehouse guys in and see what they say, right? And, and they've sat there and gone, yeah, you'll never get around that corner, right? It, or that racking needs to shift out by two feet or yeah, the, the this is too high or too low or, and they're not looking at drawings. They're not trying to imagine. They're actually sat right. moving things around. Right. Uh, and even they can't understand how they're doing what they're doing, but they're loving the process, right? Yeah. So the material human need to engage on a personal level through these big decision-making processes will drive the development of I think that is the perfect way to end. Carl Heem is the Chief Operating Officer for Asia TMX Global. That was awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. I hope to see you soon.